ask you to take your Bibles once again and turn with me to the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians. This morning we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 to 19. That can be found on page 1157 in your pew Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 to 19. While you're turning... I uh, want to let you know, Les prayed this morning for our partners in ministry, and one of the partners that he prayed for was God's Grace for All Nations in Kenya. And he mentioned Pastor Simon. Well, uh, some of you I know have never had the opportunity to meet Simon Mora, uh, which is lamentable. Uh, the good news, though, is this. Simon is going to be with us this year. Uh, he's planning on coming in August, and so we will have, it'll be on a weeknight in which we will have a meal together. He's not going to be with us over a weekend, unfortunately, uh, so he won't be with us in church, but we will have an evening with Simon. Uh, we'll come here, we'll have a meal together, and we'll get an update on what the Lord is doing uh, through the work of Gigi Fan in Kenya with Pastor Simon and then Pastor Julius who is another one of the GG fan pastors. Uh, they'll both be with us in August. I also just want to say thank you. I know many of you prayed for our family this week. Uh, driving to San Antonio is, uh, is yes, it is. Uh, it's, it's just one of those things you just sort of buckle down and do. Uh, but y'all, uh, the Lord was gracious to us. We got there uh, and back safely. Had a really good but brief time with Nathaniel. And uh, he's doing well and says to be sure to pass along his greetings to you. Uh, actually, I think he's watching this morning via Zoom. Uh, they had church on base, but he was informed uh, by some other guys that it was a military grade. In other words, not very good. Uh, so he said, Dad, I think I'll just zoom in and watch church this morning. So uh, all that being said, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 beginning in verse 1. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church in Corinth and also to us, says this, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I declared to you, as of first importance, what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. 
And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then even Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's have a prayer together this morning. Father, now on this Resurrection Sunday, we give you thanks for the tomb is empty. And Lord, as we think about the facts and as we think about the evidence that is presented before us, and Father, as we consider then what is at stake, we pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. For we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. This past week, a seminary president tweeted the following. Happy Easter. You can believe in resurrection without believing in bodily resurrection. Faith is more than adherence to rigid dogma. Now, let me be clear. That's utter nonsense. Just because it's a seminary president doesn't make it right. But as I was thinking this week about that rather misguided tweet, it got me considering the following question. Does it really matter? Or let me put it another way. Does it matter that the tomb was actually literally empty? Or is merely the idea of resurrection sufficient for the task at hand? Well, in an interesting bit of irony, the individual who posted that tweet leads an institution that prides itself in being on the cutting edge of theological studies, right? They're, they're progressive, they're out there, they're always pushing the boundaries and trying to do new stuff. But what she is suggesting in that tweet, that you don't have to believe in a bodily resurrection, is neither new nor is it cutting edge. It's an old heresy that she is suggesting. It's as old as the resurrection of Jesus itself. In our text for this morning, the Apostle Paul walks the church in Corinth through why the bodily resurrection of Jesus is indeed such a big deal. Now understand that as we think about Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, at least the first edition of it, what we call 1 Corinthians, Paul begins with the cross, and he ends here in 1 Corinthians 15 by talking about the resurrection. So he wants us to understand that the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus are central to our identity as Christians. And if we mess that up, then we've given away something that is quite precious. That's captured hopefully this morning in our big idea. On page five of the bulletin, you'll see an outline for our time together. And you see there also the big idea. The big idea in one sentence, hopefully, is what the sermon is about. And here it is. If Christ is not raised, then our hope is false. If Christ is not raised, then our hope is false. Now, 
even as we give the big idea, there's a word there that needs some explanation. It's that word, hope. You see, hope in the Bible is not wishing. Remember, there were times in college in which, in which I would walk in to take an exam hoping that I would do well. Now, I hadn't prepared. I probably hadn't attended the class very much. I surely hadn't studied. I had crammed from the, for the exam, and if I had done, been particularly thorough in my quote-unquote preparation, I had asked folks in an earlier class what they thought the test was about. I was hoping to do well. Well, in that instance, hoping is merely wishing. That's not the kind of hope that the Bible presents. And it's not the way the Bible uses the word hope. No, hope is confidence in the future. It's a confidence in the future that's based on God and his character and not on our circumstances. It's based on God and his character and not on our circumstances. And so here is the hope that the Apostle Paul is presenting to us. Because Jesus rose, so will you. Because Jesus rose, so will you. Well, what's the foundation? What's the basis of that hope? There's two points we want to make as we consider Paul's argument. The first is that there are facts and evidence that he presents. There are facts and evidence that he presents. Again, this hope is not just wishing. This hope is not some sort of state of mind. This hope is not merely an emotion, but it's built on something. And the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is built upon facts and evidence. Paul begins in verse 3 by giving us the facts. The facts as, we, as he presents them to us are as such. Christ died. Let's just start right there. He wasn't mainly dead. He wasn't mostly dead. If you're a fan of either Monty Python or if you've seen The Princess Bride, then you know there's a difference between being dead and being mainly dead or mostly dead, right? This is not just a flesh wound. Jesus actually was dead. And he was proclaimed dead by the Romans. The Romans who were experts at this kind of execution. It was the most horrific and hideous form of death that you could ever imagine, and they perfected it. They were, as it were, the kind of maestros of pain and execution, and they were good at it. And one of the reasons that Roman soldiers became so good and so proficient at this kind of gruesome execution was because their own lives literally depended on it. A failed crucifixion meant that the crew who was on duty that day, who was responsible for carrying out this kind of execution, it meant that they themselves would undergo crucifixion. So they had a vested interest in making sure that Jesus wasn't mainly dead or mostly dead, but that he was dead, dead. But Jesus didn't just die for some sort of misguided ideas. Jesus 
Was it merely some guy who decided he was going to push against the halls of power? This is not Jesus fought the law and the law won. But Paul tells us that he died for our sins. That literally the reason Jesus died was on behalf of your sin and my sin. And only Jesus did this because only Jesus was sinless. Everyone else, every other human being who has ever lived, every other son of Adam and daughter of Eve is a sinner. And so because we are sinful, we could not take the place of another. We could not die for their sin because we have our own sin to atone for. But Jesus, as the God-man, as the sinless one, was able to be a substitute he took our place. He died for our sins. And he did so, Paul tells us, in accordance with the scriptures. And I hope you noticed that in verse 3, and then again in verse 4, Paul emphasizes that this was in accordance with the scriptures. This idea of a bodily resurrection was not something uh, that the New Testament writers had to dream up. It wasn't as though they had placed all their cards uh, in on the Jesus pile, and when he was crucified, they had to figure something out. No, as Jenny read for us, this idea of the resurrection of the dead is something that's uh, presented throughout the Bible. And in Daniel, we're told, not only was Jesus resurrected, but we will be resurrected. Some will be resurrected to life, but some will be resurrected, as we read, to judgment. Not only is this in accordance with scriptures, but all of this is of first importance. See, there are things within the Christian church, there are things in various and assorted traditions that we can just disagree on. It's okay. The mode of baptism, who should be baptized? whether or not we ordain certain individuals into offices and how many offices and how many sacraments and how they function, all those things are things that we're free to disagree on. And indeed, throughout the history of the church, we have disagreed on those things. But Paul wants us to understand that this is not something that you can merely set aside and disagree on and come up with an alternative formula and still call yourself a Christian. No, these facts, this evidence, is of first importance. So we can't merely say, as Billy Dean sang about 20 years ago, so let's leave it alone because we can't see eye to eye. There ain't no good guy. There ain't no bad guy. There's only you and me, and we just disagree. This is not one of those issues. To deny the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ is to proclaim something other than the gospel. Whatever it is that you're proclaiming, it's not Christianity. By the way, it's interesting to note that the, the seminary president who posted that tweet, uh, they also, in the same seminary, have a tenured professor of Muslim studies. Not as in like, uh, we need to understand this because we're sending missionaries to foreign countries, and so it's Good to understand the folks you're trying to evangelize. No, you can go to that seminary and literally get an MDiv as a Muslim cleric. 
Jesus left the building about the time the Doobie Brothers broke up in that particular seminary. Well, what's the evidence? The evidence in verses 5 to 11, Paul tells us that Jesus, in his resurrected body, appeared to eyewitnesses. He appeared to Cephas, namely to Peter. He appears to the 12, which at this point are now the 11. And then he appears to 500 other believers. And then lastly, he says, uh, Paul, because he was one untimely born, the resurrected Jesus appeared to Paul himself. Now, eyewitness testimony is one of the things that we still value. Even in our high-tech, uh, highly digitized, highly connected day and age, we value eyewitness testimony. You see, you can doctor video files you can plan evidence, you can do all kinds of things, but eyewitness testimony is still the best kind of testimony that one can give. It's the best kind of evidence that you can have. And I hope you understand that according to Paul's math, if we gave each of these eyewitnesses 15 minutes to tell their testimony about the resurrected Jesus, you would need three Eight hour, three weeks of eight-hour days in the courtroom to hear all of their testimony. For three weeks, at eight hours a day, and by the way, you need another day at about five and a half hours, you would hear these men and women all tell you they saw the bodily, resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. I think we're all probably suspicious enough and we're all probably a little bit jaded enough to realize you couldn't get 500 people to lie like that. It wouldn't work. Not under oath. Uh, if you've ever had uh, developed any kind of fluency in lying, and I pray that you haven't, but if you have, you know that one of the hardest things for a liar to do is to keep track of to whom they've told what. you got to keep the story straight. Paul says, no, understand. There are 500 people, and they will all tell you exactly the same thing. And it's interesting, the last bit of evidence that Paul gives us is his own life. He tells us that he was once a persecutor of the church, but he's moved from being a persecutor to a proclaimer of the gospel. And I'm always uh, interested whenever people make career changes, why did you do it? What did you do? I'm fascinated. NPR from time to time will talk about folks who, when they retire, right, they, they get into a particular field because their parents wanted them to or because uh, they could make good money in it. And then uh, they retire, hopefully, uh, at a younger age as opposed to an earlier age. And then they get to go, and they get to go and do what they really love. Right? They're like, well, I had to make a living. I had to do this thing because it was expected of me. But now I can go do this thing I love, and it's great. It's wonderful. It's awesome. Uh, life is fantastic. Right? If you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life. Well, I hope you understand that Paul, going from persecutor to proclaimer, was not, humanly speaking, a wise career move. Paul had respect. He was going places. 
he was noted in the Jewish community. He uh, was the powers that be knew who he was and they thought highly of him. Later in 2 Corinthians, Paul's going to give a laundry list of all the things that have happened to him since he went from persecutor to proclaimer. Friends, I don't know about you, but I wouldn't take a beating for a lie. Paul not only takes a beating, he takes several beatings. He's shipwrecked. He's stoned. They leave him for dead. All the things that have happened to him. At times, scholars call this the irrefutable evidence. Paul's life has been changed. It's going in an entirely different direction. Humanly speaking, we would look at it and go, man, what, what, what are you thinking? Well, Paul had been captured by the truth of the gospel. He had been captured by the actual physically resurrected Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. That's the evidence. These are the facts. If Christ has not been physically raised, then our hope is false. But if Christ has been raised, then you will be as well. So what's at stake? Well, in verses 14 and 17, not verse 12, verses 14 and 17, Paul tells us that his preaching and our faith are at stake. That if Jesus, as he says in verse 12, now Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? In other words, we're back again to this old heresy. No, the actual physical resurrection didn't happen. Paul says in verse 13, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. So why does that matter? What is at stake? Verse 14 if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. In other words, all the beatings that Paul is taking for the sake of proclaiming the gospel, they're all for naught. Because Paul's nothing more than a sort of religious snake oil salesman. He's proclaiming something that he knows isn't true. Apparently because he thinks there's going to be some sort of financial gain or it's going to somehow benefit him to do so. He's a charlatan. What he is telling you is not the truth. And if that wasn't bad enough, Paul says, not only is our preaching in vain, but our faith is in vain. He tells him twice. He says in verse 14, not only is our preaching in vain, but your faith is in vain. And then in verse 17, your faith is futile. Listen, you were gullible enough, you were ignorant enough, you were stupid enough to believe the lie. And so whatever it is that you think you believe in, it's in vain and it's futile. How horrible then would it be to build your life upon a lie? How horrible would it be to put all your eggs in one particular basket and then find out as you got to a certain point in your life that what you thought was actually true was instead a lie. I saw an interview. We were talking about this at the dinner table last night because when your kids come home from school, you talk about all kinds of interesting things uh, around the dinner table. 
Um, there is a, a growing number now of uh, transgender folks who at very young ages had undergone surgeries uh, to reverse or to change uh, their gender. And then as they got older, we're like, whoa, wait a minute. I, I don't think I want to do this. And there was an interview done by a, a particular media person uh, speaking to a young woman who at the age of 13 had had gender reassignment surgery. So she'd had her breasts removed and uh, she'd undergone all the hormone treatments and all the kinds of things. And she was describing uh, in, in very vivid terms the kind of mutilation that she had undergone. And then she changed her mind. And then she came to realize that what she had been told was a lie. And in this, it was, it was heartbreaking to watch. She, she looked at the interviewer and she said in this moment of utter despair, she's like, who's going to love me now? I can't have children. I can't enjoy the parts of being a woman in a marriage relationship with a man. Who's going to love me? And to his credit, the interviewer stood there and you could, you could see the tears. And he just shook his head and said, my God. Friends, believing a lie is catastrophic. Paul says, if you believe that the resurrection is true, but it's not. Your faith is in vain. Your faith is futile. Well, it isn't just that Paul and the other apostles would be lying about Jesus, that they'd be lying about the truthfulness of the events, but they would actually, verse 15, he says, be lying about God the Father himself. In an interesting bit of Trinitarian theology, we're told that, yes, Jesus died for our sins. And it was God the Father who resurrected him in power. But if Jesus wasn't actually resurrected, then not only are we lying about what happened to Jesus, we're lying about the living God. So think about, here are those who speak on God's behalf, who instead of telling the truth about God, are actually lying about him. God the Father raises God the son. But if he didn't, and we're saying that he did, then we're lying about the living God. Not only that, but we're still in our sin. Verse 17, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. See, the resurrection is a sign that God has accepted the death of Jesus as our substitute. Our sin has been atoned for. But if Jesus' death was not acceptable to God the Father, then we, then we will not be forgiven. We are not forgiven. We are still in our sin, which means we have a debt to pay. And the Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. So instead of hoping for resurrection to everlasting life, we can only hope for resurrection 
to everlasting judgment. He also tells us that not only are we still in our sin, but the dead then are just dead. Verse 18. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. In other words, they're just done. Game over. When you die, that's it. You're just warm food. There's a whole lot of nothing. Have you noticed that that's not really an acceptable answer? Ever? Even to non-Christians. Even to folks who have never, ever darkened the door of a church. If you're at a funeral, and I've, I've had the opportunity over the past several years to do funerals for classmates of mine, like extended family members. And the reason I get called is because an old high school teammate of mine is the mortician in town. And if he says, hey, did they have a church home? No. Well, were they ever a member of any church? No. Okay, well, do you remember Kyle McClellan? Yes. I can call Kyle and he can come do the funeral for you. Number one, they're shocked that the Kyle McClellan they knew as a pastor. But then number two, they're like, well, we don't really have any other choice. So yeah, I guess we'll just go with that. And it's amazing when I get to those funerals with people who showed no interest in the gospel, no interest in church, no interest in anything having to do with Jesus, the way that folks console one another and the way that they even seek to console me is this. Well, you know, we know he's in a better place. We know she's in a better place. I, I, I want to find a way to do this lovingly and kind of with a smile on my face, but not like a weird like joker smile on my face, but to be able to respond back, yeah, I don't know that we know that. They're in another place. I'm not sure, though, that you want to call it better. Listen again to the words that Jenny read for us out of Daniel chapter 12. I want to read again verse 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Yes. Uh, they're not here. They will be resurrected, but not to eternal life. They will be resurrected to shame and eternal contempt. If Christ has not been resurrected, then the dead are just dead. He goes on and finishes the argument. He says in verse 19, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are all people most to be pitied. In other words, if it's just about this life, if believing in Jesus and believing in the gospel is just about optimizing your life now, you need to go somewhere else. Because again, that's not Christianity. I've seen uh, coming into Fremont, there's a, 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 at least there had been a billboard. Uh, there's a, a particular church that's coming to town and their billboard says, life is hard, we're here to help. Uh, yes, listen, the gospel will indeed help in this life. But Paul's making it clear that the gospel is about more than just this life. 
The gospel is about the life to come. Because Christ has been resurrected, so will you. And the question this morning is not whether or not you will be resurrected. The question is, where will you go when you are resurrected? Will you go to eternal life? Or will you face an eternity of scorn, shame, and contempt? That's the question that is implied as Paul speaks about the reality of the resurrection. If you're here this morning and you're a Christian, then you realize, yes, Christ has been raised. I have hope in the life that is to come. But if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you need to know that on the basis of the facts and the evidence, Christ has been resurrected. And so will you. And there is a life that is yet to come. And so the question this morning for you is, where are you going to spend eternity? Will you spend eternity knowing that your sins have been atoned for by another? Knowing that there is great hope that is yours in the gospel? Or will you face eternity and will you face your resurrection knowing that there is waiting for you judgment? That there is waiting for you scorn and contempt? Because Christ has been resurrected, so will you. This morning, we're going to celebrate together the Lord's table. And particularly on Easter morning, we recognize that this is a meal. This is a feast of hope. Christ has been raised. We are forgiven. We have been saved. We are being saved and we will be saved. We will be raised as Christ has been raised. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the hope that is ours in the gospel, not the wishing, but the hope. The idea that the facts, the reality that facts and evidence point us to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, actually, physically, bodily, the tomb is indeed empty. And Lord, because of that, we have forgiveness and we have hope. All of reality has been changed. And so we pray this week you would help us to live out that reality as Paul did in ways that are compelling, in ways that speak to the reality and the authenticity of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.